Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, today we are looking in at uh, the Holy Spirit, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and uh, Devin must have been Holy Spirit inspired with that little salsa number a, a few moments ago, so uh, thank you for Devin and his creativity there. Um, but anyway, so we're continuing in our series today of looking in, and we're looking in at the coming of the Holy Spirit. But before we get into today's message, I want to just make mention that today's going to be more of a teaching approach to this topic. Uh, when I talked to Mark Johnson about this earlier in the week over the phone, just telling him where I was going with this uh, message, he said, oh, that kind of sounds like it's going to be more of a Holy Spirit 101 type of talk or type of class. And I said, yes, yes, it is. It's going to be more, more one of those kind of things. So today will probably feel less of a sermon, and some of you might be going, praise God for that. No, I don't know. But... Um, but it'll be less of a sermon and more like a, almost like a class that we're going to be going through today is I want to just kind of walk through the Bible on what it has to say about some of the basics of the Holy Spirit. So today you could say is going to be more of like a 30,000 foot view uh, or the macro view of the Holy Spirit. And uh, in your life group material, that's kind of like where the bullseye is going to be uh, this week because that's going to be more of the, mac- or the micro view on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's impact on you uh, being a follower of, of Jesus. So I really want to encourage you to get into your life group homework this week, dig into it, be encouraged by it, because this is where uh, the Holy Spirit will make the most impact on you as you dive into his word to see what uh, God's word has to say about him. So, um, so let's get started. So Today, I want to, if you look at your outline, there's basically four uh, big ideas, four big topics there that I want to address related to uh, the Holy Spirit. And the first begins with the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament. Now, several years ago, I was leading a, a small group of adults, and one of the guys in the small groups over a course of, of dinner was um, we got into the topic of the Holy Spirit and, and started talking about how the Holy Spirit uh, is active a little bit differently in the Old Testament than he is from the New Testament. Not completely different, but there's a couple little nuances that are different. And uh, my friend's name in the small group was Jerry, and he was kind of confused about this, and we had a conversation about it. And so today, I thought perhaps there could be some in this room uh, who are kind of like my uh, friend Jerry, who have maybe some questions about how the Holy Spirit was active in the New Testament and maybe not having some clarity on that. So I wanted to first uh, start with that, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then secondly, I want to talk about how the Holy Spirit was, was about, his coming was prophesied about in the Old Testament, as well as by Jesus when he was doing his uh, earthly ministry. And then third that those prophecies talked about in the Old Testament and by Jesus were fulfilled uh, in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And lastly, I want to look at the Holy Spirit's coming to believers in Christ, that when you believe in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit comes to you. And we want to talk about some of the benefits that the Holy Spirit gives to you for living the Christian life. So... Let's get started. So the Holy Spirit, like as we were singing in that song a few moments ago, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. There's God the Father, there's Jesus the Son, and then 
the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a personal and eternal being who is co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father and Jesus the Son. And because the Holy Spirit is part of the eternally existing Trinity, that means he's not a new concept that suddenly pops up on the pages of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit was active. In fact, he's very active in, in several ways in the New Testament. So when we get to the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of John, and, and Jesus is talking to his disciples about the sending of the Holy Spirit, it's not as though he's introducing a new character to the biblical account that the disciples have never heard of before. It wouldn't be completely foreign to them. But before we get to the coming of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, I want to take a look at what he's doing in the Old Testament. So I want to begin with how the Holy Spirit is active in the Old Testament, and particularly the first point there on your outline is how he's active at creation. So the first mention of the Holy Spirit's activity in the Old Testament is in the very first couple verses of the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. As Genesis 1-2 says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters of the deep. And the Spirit of the God, the Spirit of God is just another name for the Holy Spirit. And he's hovering over the face of the waters there, right in Genesis 1, chapter 2. So from the very beginning of creation, of the creation of the creation account, the Holy Spirit is there, and he is involved with God the Father and Jesus the Son in the act of creation. And we know Jesus was involved in the act of creation when we read through our New Testament, particularly in Colossians, it speaks of that. Now, the second way the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament was that he would come upon people. And interestingly, we'll also see how the Holy Spirit could also leave people, okay? And there are several examples in the Old Testament of the Holy Spirit coming upon people to help them accomplish things for God. One example of this is from Israel's history during the, the period of the judges. Uh, before Israel was a national kingdom, they were a tribal people. And when they first settled in the promised land, they were led by certain individual judges whose job was to act as a, a judge in, the, in, a, in a way of civil law, but also they were a, a military type of figure who would carry out God's judgment against God's enemies in the land. So in the period of the judges, the, the Bible records that the Spirit of God came upon these judges to empower them and supernaturally help them overcome their enemies in battles. And one of these judges was Samson. And Samson, when you read his story, he, he kind of reminds you of like the Incredible Hulk of, of the Old Testament because Samson was, was slaying Philistines and he was slaying lions. In Judges 14, 6, it says, the Holy Spirit comes upon him to defeat a lion with his bare hands. Judges 14, 6 uh, says this about it. It says, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So apparently, even back in those days, there were things young men did that they didn't want their parents to know about. So 
Um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to share that with your parents. That'd be kind of a cool thing, I would think. So anyway, um, another, another time the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson is when he defeated a thousand Philistines with just using a donkey's jawbone. In Judges 15, verses 14 and 15, it says this. It says, when he, being Samson, came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. Now, not only did the Spirit of God rush upon military leaders to help them do extraordinary acts, but he also rushed upon uh, administrative leaders as well. In the book of Numbers, in Numbers 11, the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness as they're trying to make their way to the promised land, and God talks to Moses about how he's going to take a portion of Moses' spirit, in other words, the spirit that is on Moses, and he's going to place it on some of these other uh, elders who are administrative leaders to help lead the people to the promised land. And so in, in Numbers 11, we have this example where a portion of God's Holy Spirit that is upon Moses is taken from him and placed upon the 70 elders of Israel, again, as they're going through the wilderness to get to the promised land. And, and it's to help these 70 uh, elders of Israel in their leadership role, to help uh, accomplish these tasks that God has for his people and for Moses. And so in Numbers eleven seventeen, it says this. It says, and I will come down, this is God talking, and I will come down and talk with you there, speaking to Moses, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And then a few verses later in verse 25, it says that the spirit comes upon, again, the word come upon these 70 elders, and, then the re- and it tells you the results of the Spirit's power that came upon them. It says, then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him, to Moses, and took some of the Spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders, and as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So the Holy Spirit not only came upon judges and elders of Israel, but he also rushed upon uh, Israelite kings. And there's just two examples to share with you about that from from the Old Testament. Um, One is from 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. This is King Saul. He's the first king of Israel. He's appointed the king of Israel by the, the prophet Samuel. He anoints him with the oil, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon King Saul. And then this happens a few chapters later with King David. It says that um, in verse, uh, or in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, Samuel goes to King David and he takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So, It's really interesting here uh, that the Spirit of the Lord is rushing upon King David right here in in verse 13 of of 1 Samuel chapter 16. So God starts with King Saul. The Holy Spirit rushes upon him. 
Eventually, King Saul disobeys God, and God puts forward a new king for Israel, David, and the Holy Spirit rushes upon King David in verse 13 of chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. But as soon as God is rushing upon King David, if you look at the next verse, the Holy Spirit is leaving King Saul. Interestingly, the Holy Spirit would not only rush upon people and come upon people, but in the Old Testament, he would leave people as well. And so, if you look at 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And the reason that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul was because of his disobedience to the Lord's command that he had given him. And as a consequence for his disobedience, he lost God's divine favor of his kingdom, of his kingship. And God decided to give the kingdom instead to David. But David understood this consequence and potential of losing the Holy Spirit. He understood this very well. Perhaps because he saw it happen to King Saul. And the evidence for that, that David knows that, is from Psalm 51, one of his most famous psalms that he wrote, which is a psalm all about him confessing his sin of adultery and, and murder and a bunch of other things that we talked about yesterday in our um, men's breakfast uh, from Warren Williams. We had a great conversation about David and the laws and sins that he broke there when he um, committed adultery and, and was, played a hand in the murder of uh, Bathsheba's uh, death, the death of her husband Uriah, who was a righteous man. And so in Psalm 51:11, David writes this. He says, "Cast me not." You know, he's, he's writing to the Lord here. He says, "Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your holy spirit from me." And so David understood that, hey, he could have div- God's divine favor, but he could also lose this favor as well. But fortunately for David, God was merciful to him because God did not take his Holy Spirit away from him, but God did uh, weaken his kingship as a result of his uh, sin. That was the consequence for his sin. Now, another way that the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament was through the writing of the Old Testament. So, for example, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says that the Old Testament prophets' writings were inspired, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And it says this in, first, or in 2 Peter 2, 120 to 21, it says, Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So true biblical prophecy is not carried out by man's own feelings, by man's own visions. It has to come directly from God through the power of the Holy Spirit. But really, the Holy Spirit is involved in in all of what has been written in the Bible, not just the Old Testament, because in in, in 2 Timothy 3.16, it tells us that all Scripture has been breathed 
by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired by Him and carried out through the power of His Holy Spirit. So just to briefly recap here this big point number one, to briefly recap the activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is active in creation. He would come upon people to empower them for service, right? And He could also leave people and turn away from them because of their disobedience or rejection to his word. And the Holy Spirit is also involved in giving prophecy and in writing not only the Old Testament, but also the entirety of the whole Bible. And so these are just a few of the ways that the Old Testament talks about the activity of the Holy Spirit. But as I mentioned earlier, the Old Testament prophesied about a time when God would send the Holy Spirit in a way not done before. You see, through the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27, it says this. It says, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel of a time that would come when people's hearts would be transformed from having uh, hearts that were hard towards God to having hearts that were soft towards him. And it says that God would put his spirit within people to help them obey his commands and follow him. Now, not only the Old Testament prophesied about the Holy Spirit's coming in a unique way, but Jesus himself in his earthly ministry prophesied as well about what the coming of the Holy Spirit would be like. And his words are very similar to the prophet Ezekiel because Jesus said this to his disciples in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, verses 15 to 17. Jesus said to his disciples, he says, and this is like... uh, during, during the upper room before he is betrayed and before he goes to the cross. And he says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. So in verse 16, Jesus says that the helper or the counselor or the advocate, as your Bible might say, all those titles are referring to the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit will be with you forever. The Holy Spirit is truthful. He tells the truth of God and he testifies to the truth of God and Christ. And like what was said in Ezekiel, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit would dwell with his disciples and be in his disciples. But Jesus didn't just stop there with those particular promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit because in John 16, 78, he, when he talks about, he, he says that when he leaves his ministry, when he leaves the earth after his resurrection, he says that there would be a benefit of him going back to the Father and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And one of the benefits of the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talks about is that people would be convicted of their sins. 
that the Holy Spirit, in other words, would play a crucial role in God's plan of salvation. Uh, John 16, 78, this is what Jesus says. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, to the disciples' advantage, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, Jesus says more about the Holy Spirit in that chapter. Again, he refers to him as the spirit of truth who would guide the disciples into all the truth, that the Holy Spirit would not just speak on his own authority, but he would speak only what the Father and Jesus gave him to speak, and that the Holy Spirit would declare the things that are to come. Okay, so in other words, Jesus is telling the disciples that you're going to be given the ability to uh, give prophecy through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we read the rest of the New Testament, that certainly came true as the apostles. I think in every book of the, of the New Testament, you have some kind of prophetic revelation given by those who wrote uh, the New Testament to all of them. So the Holy Spirit was involved in giving these men uh, prophecy that they were to write and record for all people. And so this brings us now to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. After Jesus' resurrection, Pastor Mike focused on Jesus' resurrection the past two, two weeks, but after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, remember he appears to his disciples, he appears multiple times. Uh, in John chapter 20, he appears to his disciples uh, on the same evening of the day he rose from the dead. So the day he rises from the dead, later in the evening, he's meeting with his disciples. He shows up into the room. The disciples, when you read the account, they seem to be a little freaked out. They're kind of like, what is going on here? Am I hallucinating? Is this a ghost? Like, what is going on? And so Jesus, you know, recognizing uh, their fears, you know, basically says, hey, give me something to eat, you know? <laughs> I'll, I'll prove to you that I'm not a ghost or, or a hallucination. And in, in Luke, uh, at the end of uh, the Gospel of Luke, you see that account in detail, and Jesus, like, has a meal with them. And so, and he shows them his hands, his feet. He gives them the evidence that he's not just a ghost or, or, or their hallucination, okay? But interestingly, in John chapter 20 and verse 22, one of the things that uh, Jesus does there, it says in verse 22 that Jesus breathes on his disciples, and he tells them to receive the Holy Spirit, which was really kind of interesting because when you read Ezekiel, it talks about the Holy Spirit breathing life into the dead bones in Ezekiel chapter uh, 37. So you kind of see Jesus doing the exact same thing with his disciples that we see the Holy Spirit doing in Ezekiel 37. Now, the Holy Spirit, interestingly, you would think that, okay, now the Holy Spirit's going to come, like Jesus has been talking about. He's just breathed on them. You know, when God speaks, action happens right away usually. But that's not what happened in that moment. Kind of interesting. Can't explain why. I don't, I don't have inside information on that. So, um, but in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it says that after Jesus' resurrection, he continued to show himself to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Okay? So a little over a month, he continues to show himself. And one of the things that Jesus told his disciples during this 40-day period, he says for them to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem. 
And then, just a few verses later in Acts 1.8, just before Jesus goes back to heaven, he gives the disciples these parting words. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon them and that the Holy Spirit's going to give them power and they're going to have power to help them testify to the power of the gospel going around the world, that they would take it from around that they would take it from Jerusalem and then move out regionally to Judea, to Samaria, and then from there take it to the entire world. And again, the whole rest of the New Testament is a testimony to that, and us being here today is a testimony to that coming true, to that reality. So once Jesus goes back, I want to read this out of Acts 2. If you have your Bible, you can follow along here. There's a good uh, chunk coming here, Acts 2, uh, 1 to 4. Uh, I want to read that out of, out of the Bible here, and then uh, there's another section here in Acts 2 we'll move down to in just a moment. But here is the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has already gone back to the Father in heaven. The disciples are waiting around in Jerusalem, uh, waiting to celebrate uh, the Feast of Pentecost, okay? So here they are. Jesus has gone. Here they are gathered, ready to celebrate uh, Pentecost. Um, And here's, here's what happens. The Spirit comes right here. Acts 2, 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, the Holy Spirit comes upon all these believers who are meeting in an upper room in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power. There's a mighty rushing wind. There's tongues of fire that sit on their heads, and all the Christians are, who are there are filled with speaking in tongues. And and what that meant was is that they were speaking in a foreign language that they had never learned before. They were speaking in a language that they had never heard before, and it was given them the power to do that through the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit enabled them to speak these foreign languages to the other foreigners who had come to Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And so these other foreigners are now hearing Uh, the gospel and God's word going forth to them in their own language, being spoken to them by guys who didn't even know their own language. So it's a totally miraculous uh, event here. And so the Holy Spirit enables his people there to proclaim his word into the language that these other people spoke who were gathered together for the day of Pentecost. And obviously, this creates a huge buzz. Uh, when, you, when you read uh, further on here, uh, people are kind of like, what in the world is happening, right? And the foreigners who see what is happening are amazed. 
And they didn't understand at first that this was a supernatural event. It's kind of like what Mike was talking about uh, last week, where people were trying to explain a supernatural experience through natural reasons. And, and Peter says, nah, that's not going to work. Okay? That's, that's what he says. He says, Peter says to the eyewitnesses who were there that there's no way that this experience could be attributed to what you think it is. You think it's drunkenness. But remember, guys, hey, it's only 9 in the morning. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, now it's 10. 9 and 10 is not a huge difference in light, right? But um, so Peter's like, no, this is a supernatural event. And this is where I want to look down at uh, uh, verses 15 to 21. So look down at verses 15 to 21. Because Peter is going to explain to all these people who are witnessing this that this is a supernatural phenomenon from God. And he's going to quote uh, the prophecy of Joel from the Old Testament. Joel 28, 32 is what Peter is quoting here. And so this is his explanation of the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And uh, Peter says this, he says, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And here's the prophecy. Joel wrote this. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall, see, shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is one of those passages that I remember reading years ago and kind of being like, oh, you mean the last days began 2,000 years ago? I did not know that. But that's what it says. It says the last days actually began 2,000 years ago. So that kind of changes sometimes my thought process on the last days when people talk about the last days. Um, I even catch myself sometimes and I say, when I speak of Revelation or something, I might say the last days of days, <laughs> just to have more clarity on it. Um, so the Bible presents to us that the last days began with the sending of the Holy Spirit after Christ's ascension here in Acts 2, because that's what Peter is telling us, that the last days began with the sending of the Holy Spirit. But I'm sure you're all wondering, yeah, but in what sense? Because it's 2,000 years later, and here we are, right? Well, for one, all of Old Testament prophecy of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus, and the disciples understood this after Jesus' resurrection. They didn't understand it before. It's very clear in the Gospels that they didn't understand that before. But after Jesus' resurrection, that's why they asked him. They actually asked him before he goes back to heaven. They, they kind of understand the whole thing now. They're like, I see the big picture here. Now tell me, are you going to bring the kingdom back to Israel? Like, I just got to know, can you give us that inside information, Jesus? 
Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they see everything has been fulfilled. They know Jesus is the Messiah, the the king, who's to usher in everything God had promised to them. And Jesus tells them, nah, sorry guys, not yet. But instead, he says, wait, wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he's going to help you carry the gospel around the world. Because the Messiah's kingdom, God's plan, wasn't to uh, have this kingdom begin as a physical kingdom, but he wanted it to begin as a spiritual kingdom. He wants a people of righteousness in his kingdom. And so Jesus, yes, yes, he still has more scripture to fulfill. He still has uh, more to bring about here on earth. He will bring about his earthly kingdom when he comes again. But that's another sermon for another time. So Peter recognizes that the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus. And another reason Peter understands the coming of the Holy Spirit brings about the last days is because God has provided the way of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus came and was approved by God to be the perfect sacrifice to atone for sin, and that was confirmed not only through Jesus being without sin, but he defeated death by rising from the grave. And God is not going to send any other person to point the way to salvation. Jesus is it. It is settled. It is finished in Jesus. Like Peter says there in in verse 21, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So today... 2,000 years later, like it was then, today is the day of salvation. This is God's grace to us, that there's still a chance to come into a saving relationship with the one true God. And now another, another sense in which the last days began with the coming of the Holy Spirit is that between Jesus' ascension and his coming again, the Holy Spirit is at work drawing people to salvation and building Christ's church. That's the whole message of the book of Acts. That's the whole message of the book of Acts. It's it's the movement of the Holy Spirit through the apostles that brings people to salvation all over the world. And this brings us to the last major point of emphasis today. That is the coming of the Holy Spirit to every believer in Christ. Did you know that the Holy Spirit was involved in your decision to follow Jesus. This is how the Holy Spirit is involved in God's plan of salvation. He's involved in drawing you, pulling you into Christ, attracting you, and then convicting you of, of your sin. Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So how does the Father draw people to himself? Well, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit draws people to the Lord and convicts people of their sin, causing them to repent. And then he aids them in their belief to follow the Lord. As Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 8, he says, And when he comes, meaning the Holy Spirit... He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
So the Holy Spirit brings you to repentance. He helps you turn away from sin and helps you turn toward Christ and to follow him with your life. And when you repent and make that commitment to follow Jesus, he changes your life through the Holy Spirit's power because that's what it means to be born again. It means the Holy Spirit, he aids you, he plays a role in your spiritual rebirth. That's the whole conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus in John 3, 3 to 3, 5, and 6, I believe. I think I put on your outline. Look that up. I mean, that's, that is the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit that people need to be born from above, as some of the Bible translations say. You need a new birth. You need a spiritual rebirth, okay? So the Holy Spirit aids or plays a role in that. And just like we heard from Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, what happens in that rebirth is he gives you a new heart and a new spirit that he puts within you. He, he removes your hard heart towards God and then gives you a soft heart towards God. Why? Because he's planted his spirit within you so that you may follow him and bear fruit for him. In short, as Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians 5.17, in short, you just become a new creation. That is what's to happen. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. Now, there are certain benefits a Christ follower receives when God gives you his Holy Spirit. And the first thing that he does is that he seals you for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30 says that it's the Holy Spirit who seals you for the day of redemption. And the day of redemption is the future resurrection day when you receive a glorified body. And this sealing by the Holy Spirit happens the moment you put your faith in Jesus. That's what it says in Ephesians 1.13 and 14. In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And not only does the Holy Spirit seal us for the day of redemption, but he dwells with us, as Jesus says in John 14, 16, 17. I'm not going to read that one for the sake of time. I think we've kind of covered that before. But what's so amazing about Jesus' words there is that the Holy Spirit dwells with us, that he is in us, that it's not a temporary thing, that we don't have to worry about losing it because Jesus says we have it forever. Forever we are sealed by his Spirit. Forever we belong to the triune God when we put our faith in Christ. And so another benefit of having the Holy Spirit is that he illuminates Scripture for us. He illuminates Scripture for us. In other words, he helps us understand the Bible. Like I mentioned earlier from John 16, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. The Holy Spirit guides us in our understanding of his word. As Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So God's word is a light in a dark world, his word illuminates and pushes back the darkness because God's word is truth, because he is the source of truth. And Jesus wants his disciples to be set apart for the truth. He prays about that in John 17, 17, that his disciples would be sanctified in the truth. 
And that truth that he's referring to there is the truth of his word. He wants them to be washed in it, immersed in it, set apart in that. That's what the word sanctified means. Psalm 119, 160 says that the sum, so in other words, the whole totality of God's word is truth. So if you're looking for truth in your life, where can I get truth in my life? You look to God's word. And so not only does the Holy Spirit help guide us in the truth of God's word, he also helps us to live a righteous life. Galatians 5, 23, it talks about how when you have the Holy Spirit and God gives you the ability to live this righteous life, he produces the fruits of the Spirit in you. That's what should be happening. Producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the coming of the Holy Spirit seals you for the day of redemption, he comes to dwell with you. He helps you understand the truth of the Bible. He helps you live a righteous life. And he also, I think fourth point there, is he helps you in your prayer life. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, inter- but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So sometimes in our lives we face situations where we feel weak, And we can be unsure of, what we can be unsure about is, you know, what are we to really be praying for in this moment? What are we really to be praying for as I'm going through what I'm going through? I mean, we know we're supposed to pray to the Lord and that we're to cast all our anxieties on him. But sometimes we don't know exactly how to pray God's will or pray towards God's will in in whatever situation you might find yourself Life gets hard sometimes. What should I be praying? Am I praying the right way here? Am I praying the wrong, you know, am I praying the right way or am I praying the wrong way? I don't know. And this is where the Holy Spirit is interceding in our lives to help work things out in our lives for the Lord's will to be done. And so lastly, the Holy Spirit helps us serve the body of Christ, his church, by empowering us with spiritual gifts. And so while it is true that God gave the early church certain offices and gifts of the Spirit like apostleship, prophets, tongues, and healings. My personal belief is I believe those have ceased for today. For one, true apostleship in the early church had to meet three criteria. They had to have, an apostle had to physically have seen the resurrected Jesus. Secondly, they had to be personally appointed by Jesus to be an apostle. And three, Their appointment to apostleship was proven by their ability to do miraculous signs. And I don't think anybody today can meet those biblical qualifications for being an apostle. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that prophecies will pass away, that tongues will cease. And so there's no new prophetic revelation for today as the book of Revelation closes prophetic revelation for the church age. And tongues were given to speak a language that, like I said earlier, someone never learned for the purpose of advancing and authenticating the gospel message to those who had never heard it. As for healings, God commands us to pray for the sick, and it may be his will or it may not be his will that someone recovers, but we we do not see the kinds of qualities of healings today like we saw during the early church period, because 
in the early church period, the, the sick, the blind, the crippled, the paralyzed, even a couple examples in Acts of people that died, all of those people were healed instantly. It was an instant healing. It was nothing gradual. And so the reason these sign gifts were present in the early church uh, is found in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. It says this, How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God gave the sign gifts to the early church to authenticate the apostles' message, truly being from the Lord Jesus Christ, for the advancement of the gospel that was being done through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, the gifts of the Spirit that, Jesus, that, that are given to us today, they do help empower us for ministry, and they're for the purpose of building up Christ's church. And in Romans 12, 6 and 8, it talks about how he gives us the ability to serve, to teach, to exhort in our teaching and preaching, to give generously, to lead, to do acts of mercy. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9, it talks about he gives us wisdom, knowledge, faith. Ephesians 4, 11, there's uh, evangelistic gifts. Te- uh, pastors have gifts. The gift of being a pastor, the gift of being a teacher. So all those who follow Jesus do have a particular kind of gift that God has given them through the agency of the Holy Spirit that is to serve his church. And hopefully you know the gift that God has given you and you are putting it to use for his glory. But now God gives each of these particular gifts. He doesn't just want you to value those gifts, and this is where we're going to close today. God doesn't want you just to value the maybe one unique individual gift he gives you. He actually wants you to follow the greater gifts, the three gifts of faith, hope, and love. And Paul says the greatest of these is love. Pursue the greatest gift. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8, last passage here. It says, Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. So one of the evidences of being a believer in Christ and possessing the Holy Spirit is we can ask ourselves, how are we growing in our love? How are we growing in our love towards God? How are we growing in our love towards one another within the church? How are we growing in our love towards lost people? And so as we seek to live out the life God has called us to, let's, let's live out the greatest gift that we have been given by God, which is love. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this time uh, in your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you have given to those who believe in you. May we walk with you, Lord. May we keep in step with your spirit. And uh, yeah, just continue to do a, a work in us. Help us to grow in our love for you, our love for one another in this church, and for lost people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.